Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6. If you're new, welcome. My name is Sam, and we just go straight through books of the Bible. Right now, we're in Genesis, and uh, we're going to go uh, continue to go through till we get to about Genesis 11 at the end of February. Then we'll return to the book of Matthew, where we were, and uh, people wondered maybe why we stopped at uh, chapter 26, uh, and that's because I didn't want to preach Easter in Christmas or at Christmas. And so we'll return to 26, 27, and 28. Uh, through the uh, month of March, including Good Friday service, uh, and then we'll most likely return to Genesis again and do it in chunks. Genesis 6 is uh, the story of Noah's Ark, uh, at least the beginning of the story of Noah's Ark. And for many of us, young and old, Noah's Ark is probably one of the most well-known stories in the entire Bible. What I find is that when a story is that well-known or familiar, we often are dismissive of it, and we often don't look to it for much uh, meaning anymore. We just kind of, oh, yeah, Noah's Ark, and move forward, and maybe even um, uh, ignore or, or uh, don't go deeply into some of these passages. Uh, we're intrigued, though. Everyone, believe it or not, is intrigued by the story of the flood, this, this cataclysmic flood covering the earth uh, in, in water and the drowning of nearly every living creature on the planet and the reforming of the geological landscape to the extent where it could have created things like the Grand Canyon and other things to explain why the world looks the way it does. That's an intriguing story for anybody. And, and I think what's even more, though, captivating is the record of one guy, uh, one guy and his family, a man named Noah, uh, and how they survived this huge, uh, uh, epic flood and did so by building over um, somewhere between 70 and 100 years a huge boat that is uh, the length of one and a half football fields um, to house his family and two of every kind of animal uh, in existence and stay in there for 120 days. Like that's a captivating story for anyone. Unfortunately, I think believers and non-believers alike probably spend way too much time on the less important hows and whats of Noah's story. And they ignore the more important whys, which is where I want to spend a lot of our time. How Noah was able to, to do what he did uh, is intriguing uh, and, and interesting, and there's many uh, scholars uh, who have written about that, but I think it's substantially less important than why God commanded Noah to do it at all. Now, the first 10 verses of chapter 6, where we're going to spend our time today, reveal why. Why God chose to kill every living thing that was on the face of the earth, lest one family and perishing animals. And we need to understand in context, at the time of Noah, uh, it had been about 1,500 years since the fall of Adam and Eve. And so that's 1,500 years for sin to do its work. And sin had continued to corrupt all aspects of God's creation. When they fell, Adam and Eve, God had told uh, Eve and Adam and, and Satan several things. He told Satan that there would be hostility between Eve's children and that one of her children, one particular seed, uh, would crush him one day. And so it follows that Satan, um, devoted to himself uh, and to uh, destroying God's world, um, exploited the fallen nature of men through temptation and through accusation and uh, their children. And so as people multiplied exponentially, uh, we see that sin multiplied epidemically, and it spread and it spread and it spread to the point where we arrive in Genesis 6, which is obviously not that far in, in overall history, but represents at least 1,500 years that all civilization after that time had rejected God and become so infected by sin that God chose to wipe the earth clean and start over. So asking why is, is kind of important, and understanding and, and, and kind of digging into what this reveals about our God and ourselves is very important. Genesis 6 is, is a record of history, but it's not just an historical record of great sin and great wrath. It actually um, gives us insight into uh, the greatness of God's grace. 
It also reveals um, the sinfulness of our own culture today. According to the post-flood psalmist in Psalm 14, this is what is written. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. And there is none who does good, not even one. We don't believe that. That's post-flood. That's after the world has been wiped clean. And God, it says, looks down on the earth and he sees that there is no one good, not even one. We don't believe that partially for ourselves. Like, well, I'm not that bad. But we think of someone like Mother Teresa or someone that's, you know, in that good category, the, the epitome, the example of good. And God, in his assessment, looks down and says there's none, not even one, which knowing he's omniscient, knowing his assessments are pretty much perfect, there's no good. And so we have to be careful as we read Genesis 6 going, well, that's the way it was. No, this is the way it is. If you're to ask the average person why God should let them into heaven, they'll probably tell you that they should be allowed to live forever. Because on earth, they tried their best. Tried their best to live a good life. And most people sincerely believe that their good deeds are going to get them into heaven. That their bad deeds are not really that bad, at least not as bad as whomever they decide to compare themselves to. Because in truth, we can always find someone worse than us to make ourselves feel kind of good. At least I'm better than that person. Genesis 6 really helps us to see the world and our hearts from God's perspective. And that's really the only perspective that matters. I hope you understand. In short, we're going to see that Though the sins of men are great and it does create great sorrow, we're also going to see that comparison God's grace is The first ten verses of Genesis 6 give us a description of not only how corrupt things became, but how God felt about it. You read in verse 1, it says that when man began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took them as their wives, and they chose. The Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. So when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, there are many different interpretations to this passage, which reveals to us there's many people who've gotten this stuff wrong. And I'm not here to go, but I figured it out. Let me reveal to you the truth that's been hidden for all these centuries. That's not what I'm trying to do. But the, these verses are some of the most mysterious in the Bible. And because we're like, um, you know, the... the uh, what's that, that show, Alien Civilization, whatever that weird show is that people watch, Alien something. You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about. I know some of you guys do. Because we're like that, we get captivated by things like the Nephilim. Right? What is that? Oh, giants. And then people put these pictures out of these huge skeletons, and you're just like, oh, there were giants. And we get so captivated by stuff that's mysterious, which is not wrong, it just is but it causes us to lose sight of what actually God is trying to teach us here. At times, like in genealogies, the details are important, but at times, like Genesis 6, the details become a distraction. There are two uh, really main interpretations of the passage, and I'll share it with you. And they center on how we understand the sons of God and the daughters of men, and it's really important that we have at least a grasp of of, of what these mean, uh, even if we don't have a perfect understanding of what they mean. So the first interpretation, I say there's two interpretations. I mean, you will find godly men um, whom we all would respect 
in history and in, in, in contemporary um, in culture that, that hold to both of these. Then there's some really wacky ones that we won't even uh, get into, like ancient alien stuff. First, though, um, one interpretation is that some believe that the sons of God that they're talking about represent the godly sons of Seth that we saw in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 was the genealogy of Seth, what amounts to the godly line of Seth that came down from Adam and appointed a, a replacement for Abel was Seth, and then people kind of call upon the name of the Lord. In contrast to the end of Genesis 4, we have the line of Cain, the ungodly line of Cain, the line that is dedicated to building their own culture for their own name and their own glory. The ones who call upon the name of the Lord, in this case the sons of God, often the sons of God is used in the New Testament to talk about believers. So it leads people to believe that these are believers. And the sons of Seth believed God, they walked with God, they proclaimed God. But in time, if we go with this interpretation, they were attracted by the beautiful yet ungodly daughters of Seth, the descendants of and what we see is that captivated really by their lust, they began to marry the ungodly descendants of Cain. Particularly, they married unbelieving women and produced ungodly but very mighty and strong and powerful children who were figuratively big in stature. Now, it's important to remember as we consider some of these interpretations to not lose sight of the context of what's going on, particularly who this is written to and when. So Moses is writing uh, this down, most likely receiving it directly from the Lord. Some of it is probably oral tradition that they know, uh, but it's still inspired of the Lord. And he's writing it down as the nation, the newly formed nation of Israel is, is traveling through the wilderness and they're coming up to the promised land. And they were going to enter into a promised land that was populated by the Canaanites. And the Canaanites were a pagan people, an evil people, uh, who, did, who did evil things and worshipped all kinds of false gods. And one of the major uh, rules that God said and declared and then revisited time and time again was, do not marry pagan people. Don't intermarry with them. And every time you saw the Israelites basically go after Canaanite or pagan women, it did not go well. Their godliness did not impact the ungodliness. The opposite would happen every time. And you would have those who had gone after the ungodly become ungodly themselves and begin to worship false idols. And so in a very real way, I think Moses, or the Lord through Moses, is using this to caution them and to warn them and to remind them what happens. And what had happened when the godly line of Seth was corrupted, when they went after ungodly intermarriage, if you will, and corrupted and became more wicked, not more godly. So that's one interpretation. The second is uh, a little more interesting. And this is the interpretation that believes that the sons of God represent angels who fell from heaven. The term sons of God is used in the Old Testament typically and almost exclusively about angels. And so the sons of God, or um, the Nephilim, which mean fallen ones, but is often translated giants, these fallen ones or fallen angels or demons are somehow intermarrying with women, human women, and producing giant children, strong and powerful, literally giants. Now this is one of the oldest interpretations held by Jews. It's not one they talk about often. But at the flood, God not only destroyed this generation of giants, he then condemned these particular angels to prison in this view. It takes verses like in the book of Jude, which is a very small book at the very end of the New Testament, Jude 6 and 7, to explain this. It says, the angels who did not stay with their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, and it's interesting that that's the comparison made, 
just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And again, if you think of the context and, and who this is being written to and, and when, the Israelites, um, when they were going around the wilderness, they, uh, around Numbers 13, I believe, we came to the edge of the promised land and Moses sent in 12 spies. And if you went to Sunday school as a little kid, you remember the song, maybe not, 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad, 2 were good, woo! You remember that? I know some of you do, like, I know, keep going. What did this eagle they spied on Canaan? Like, it's a great song. Twelve spies went in. Two came out with a positive report. Caleb and Joshua said, God's given it to us. Let's take it. And ten spies said, no way. Because, among other things, the giants are there. The sons of Anak are there. We cannot defeat them. And so in a very real way, you can imagine that this story could be used to give them comfort, even courage, to remind them that these giants were defeated. These giants were wiped out by God, and they will be again. Not sure that they used it for that, but you can understand this is not some random reference. Now, regardless of the interpretation you take, I think you can support both conscriptions. Both are used in the same way. You step back and you go, what actually is being said here? Both are being used to prove the validity of God's assessment of things. That the world is wicked. The world is corrupt. And it is corrupt in a specific way, but it is full of wicked, evil, sinful behavior. They're doing bad things. And the nature of this wickedness, like what kind of wickedness? Well, at its core, the nature of it is that God's creation has rejected God's place. See, corruption of the world and brokenness in the world is not just the result of people breaking God's rules. It's the result of creation trying to function apart from God's design. If you remember Genesis 1 and 2, right? Creation is good. Creation is wonderful. Creation is amazing according to the Lord and blessed when it functions according to his designs. And it is very bad when it does not. However popular it might be, however good it might feel, regardless of how much it might make sense to go against the way God has designed things, when creation functions differently than its creator design, things go poorly. And we see that unfold in Genesis. Beginning with murder, violence, slander, thievery, all kinds of things. And I think it's noteworthy in, in this interpretation as God is trying to go, let me, let me tell you how corrupt things are, how wicked things are. This is the climax of wickedness, right? This is like it's gotten so bad after 1,500 years that God's going to wipe it clean. And the thing that it is exemplified, the example that they use is what? Sexual perversion. The thing that most exemplifies the brokenness of the world and the corruption is the perversion of God's designs for sexuality and marriage. It should not surprise us then when those very designs are the targets most attacked in the culture today. We want to measure how broken our culture is and how messed up it is. You may look at our view of sexuality and marriage. That's how you can see. And to be honest, it ain't much different than Genesis 6. There is nothing more destructive, nothing more pervasive, and unfortunately, nothing more attractive to the flesh of men than sexual sin. Sexual sin is destroying the world. 
I've seen it destroy marriages. I've seen it destroy families. I've seen it destroy careers. I've seen it destroy churches. I've seen it destroy people, unlike anything else. And there brings some comfort because when God sees this in verse 3, what does he say? All right, this is going to end. God has his limit. He says in verse 3, 120 years is what they get. 120 years more, and I'm wiping it clean. It reminds us that God is not unaware. God is not indifferent. But God is in control. It reminds us as well of the kind of God that we have. He describes himself, and we like to focus more on the first name than his last name. When he's talking to Moses in Exodus 34, he declares his name to Moses. And you'll understand what I mean is that we enjoy talking about the first part of his name and not the second. This is God describing himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord. This is who I am, Moses. A God merciful and gracious, yes. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Absolutely praise the Lord. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Our God is patient. Our God is merciful. And the wick of his anger is very long and burns very slowly, but it burns. He says, there will be an end to this. The Bible tells us that the sin of men is great and that God is not unaware or indifferent. But as great as man's sin is in terms of, we just looked out and I said, tell me about the sinfulness of the world. Tell me about how broken the world is. You could very easily come up with newspaper clippings and, and antidotes about all these, you know, things that are happening in the world. But verse 5 reveals that God's view of sinful behavior is that it's symptomatic of something much darker. That there is a greater problem rather than the problems we see with our eyes that the problems we see with our eyes are actually coming from somewhere else. Verse 5 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. See, we love to talk about behavior for ourselves and for others. We like to get angry at behavior. We like to be despairing about behavior. We like to talk about behavior but that's not the problem. And if you are convinced that your problem, the struggle you have in your life, is an external one, you will only seek external solutions. You'll search for a savior to fix that problem, to fix that feeling you have save you from the hell that you're in. But it will be an external one. Perhaps it will be a person, job, substance, amount of money, a church. That will be found. And guess what? When that external solution doesn't fix how you're feeling, find a new person, find a new job, a new substance. New church. If in time that doesn't fix what's broken, you'll find another one. And so the cycle will go. And in the end, you will basically find ways to manage your sin but never actually fix it. Always looking at the wrong problem. God reveals where our problem really is. He begins by saying, Our sin problem is something that's internal. That, yes, our sins are great. Our list of things we ought not have done is great, but that is not our problem. The 
The sin behind the sin is a heart that is in rebellion, that is broken, that is full of sin. God sees behind the behavior both good and bad. Many of the things that we deem good, God knows what's behind it. I'm reminded of 1 Samuel when they uh, were looking for the first king. They were looking for, oh, must be that guy, must be that guy. God said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. As he looks at the world and goes, man, this is messed up. You know what he really sees? Wow. Look at the heart. That's the problem. We act wickedly, but every wicked act that we perform flows out of the darkest part of our something that we don't have the power to fix. But he also says that our sin problem is all-encompassing. Again, something that we struggle to believe. And by all-encompassing, here's what I mean. Sin affects every single part of us. Everything. It affects not just our actions, but even our intentions and our affections and our perceptions and our motivations, everything. Sin affects how we speak and sin affects what we hear. Original sin really did a job on us. And it has always manipulated us. Sin affects everything, even so much to say that many of our good works are motivated by hearts for self-glory. God, I get this. We would like to believe we can. But we can't tell the difference even in ourselves at times, let alone others. It's amazing to think of that passage in Matthew 7 where people come before the Lord. It says, there will be many that come in the last day and say, Lord, Lord, we did many things in your name. We did this, we did this. I never knew. They were deceived. They did a lot. Our problem is internal and our problem is all-encompassing, but our sin problem is also continuous. We are sinning all the time. We are sinning all the time. Sometimes we're actively doing what we should not, and other times we're not doing what we should. But essentially, we are always continually seeking for ourselves and are self-deceived about it. What does Jeremiah 17.9 famously say? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I know we go, oh, oh, thanks for the encouragement. I really feel good about myself now that I know I'm so messed up. But I, something that we have lost in evangelical church the real grasp of the doctrine of sin. Because until you're overwhelmed with the true nature of your sin, you're never going to be overwhelmed by the radical So we have to look at that because God tells us to look at that. But he also tells us more than that. As you start to read and you go into verse 6, it says, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Have you ever wondered how sin of man, how your sin makes God? He tells us. It's not a mystery. And we wrongly imagine that he deals with sin in the same way that we wrongly probably deal with the sin of our children. That his first reaction is anger. You messed up. I'm going to spank you. But 
There's so much comfort in verse 6 and 7. The first thing that the Lord is is regretful. What do you think? Some translations will say repentant. On the surface, that makes it sound like, you know, God made a mistake. Like he was surprised. Like, oh, no. I didn't think it would get this bad. I mean, I knew they were, like, weak, but whoa, look how far they've gone. That's not how God views it. The Hebrew word used here reflects actually a very heavy breathing or deep sigh. It does reflect a change in his disposition toward men, but that does not mean that his ultimate plan has changed. On the contrary, it does signal a change of his feelings toward a people in response to some change in them. See, God's character never changes. He remains the same. But as men change in their sin. The part of his character that we experience changes. He does change in that sense, but as we continue to read, it said he is grieved. The Lord is grieved by our sin. And while our Heavenly Father is very compassionate and very concerned about the sin that destroys our lives, he is even more concerned with his glory. What grieves him most is the dishonoring of his name. And what that really amounts to is that when his creation makes something more important, that's what idolatry is. When something becomes the primary source of your identity, the primary source of your primary source of your joy is not him. That's what grieves him most. Imagine the most loving father, perfect in every way, giving you everything that you could ever want or need and you reject. And it grieves him. And those are relational terms. Like we got to remember again how Moses is, is writing to the Israelites and they're going to this promised land and they are coming from Egypt, a land full of pagan gods. And they're going into a land, the Canaanites, full of pagan gods. And God very much wants to distinguish his people, but also distinguish himself from all other gods. He is the one true God, and this God is very different. The one true God is, is personal. And his demands for worship are very different. His demands for worship, his commands for obedience, are actually invitations into relationship. This is not some capricious deity saying, obey or I'll kill you. This is a father saying, I love you, would you please be with me? Very different. But eventually we see God, his grief does lead to anger, but it begins with grief. Grief at the sin, grief at the idolatry, grief of why would you ever? God expresses his intent to blot out his creation from the face of the land because everything and everyone has become corrupted. And I've said before, if nothing else in the weirdness of this passage, you go, well, we get this theme. Everything is bad, and God is good. That's enough. Amen. Go praise Jesus. But in truth, we get so much more because we know how the story ends. See, the Israelites were getting hints to it, reflections and echoes of what was going to happen, but we see the full story. We know about the cross. We know where this is all leading to. We know that his wrath is actually part of his redemptive plan. That dare we say his wrath is an extension somehow of his love, which is hard to believe 
But we know because we see the cross where his wrath and his love come together. Because we see the fuller picture. And so as we look at this, like, oh, the sins of the world so bad, he just wants to clean it. No, he wants to save it. You see this flood and you go, God loves the world so much, he refuses to let it remain dark. And we know that because of Noah. Like if he wiped it all clean, be like, man, you're sick, right? But we see Noah. And as great as the sin is, and as great as the sorrow is over the sin, we see a grace that however small is greater than all of us. The Bible reveals that the one and only way to escape this problem is what's the problem? Well, it's not just your behavior. You could white knuckle and go, I'm going to do good. Not doing bad anymore. Good luck because the problem's inside. So you go, well, what, what does God do to simple hearts? Wrath. His wrath can't stop. Can I run from it? Can I hide from it? How about we negotiate? Can I do these good? Okay, need to get some heavenly citizenship. Got to be good. The only way to escape the wrath of God is grace. Unmerited, undeserved favor. What do we see in the last couple of verses? Noah, it says in verse 8, but Noah. Like, world is horrible. Great sin. Evil hearts. They only think about sin. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten words there's the gospel. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Noah had three sons. Now, it's interesting if you if you read children's books that have the story of Noah in it, what they what they say about Noah. They make it sound like Noah was like, well, this world was so messed up that there was one guy who prayed every day. And he loved God and he read his Bible, and there goes the power in the whole building, right? That's not what Noah was. And You'll see that after the boat, right? He gets out of the boat, and the first thing he does is throw himself a little party and get drunk. But in the midst of a holy and wicked, broken, sinful world, is the one diamond in the rough? No! It's the one God says, I'm going to show you. You know what Israel was told by God? It's awesome. I love this. They're like feeling pretty good about themselves. And he goes, okay, hold on, guys. Let me just remind you. I didn't pick you because you were like some amazing people. I didn't pick you because you were bigger or better or smarter or cuter. I simply chose to show my love. That's it. That's Noah. He doesn't show Noah favor because Noah's righteous enough to be saved. The word favor there is undeserved. Now Hebrews 11 teaches us that like his ancestor Abel, Noah was a man of faith. Hebrews 11, I believe verse 7, says that by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, it's interesting for us to think about what it means to be a man of faith. Because when I say be a man of faith, you know what we often think of? Like a man of faith is a moral man. A man of faith is a good man. A man of faith is, is someone that does great things. Let me tell you what a man of faith really is. 
A man of faith is not someone who does righteous things. A man of faith is one who truly understands how unrighteous they are. And in understanding how unrighteous they are, they trust or put faith in a righteousness outside of themselves. That's a man of faith. A man of faith is not, hey, I just do lots of killing. Okay? No. A man of faith is someone who Christ has kind of quarantined. I understand how broken I am. I understand that I have to have a rescue to save me because I am so evil, even at the deepest thought level, I'm evil continually, and even my good is evil. See, we have this idea that we're just kind of like not quite as good as Jesus. I mean, he was really good, but like he's like 100% good, like perfect. Like, you got all the stars filled on the star chart, and I'm like, you know, I got like half the stars, so that means I really need a savior. Okay, let me make it clear for you. You're not on the chart. Your goodness is not even qualified as God's goodness. Okay? Any good you do isn't worth a star. We have a really a misperception of the level of goodness that God demands from us, so much so that we think we can be good enough, and God says, you can't. I'm trying to be so clear. You can't. Like, every thought you have, you, you're purely wicked all the time. Like, oh, come on. No, really? At every, there's no one good, not even one. I'm a little bit good. No! You need goodness apart from yourself. Noah was not a man who trusted in his own righteousness. He was favored man. And I believe he became righteous and blameless, not because he walked with God, but because God showed him. We wrongly believe we can save ourselves. We believe we are stronger and wiser and gooder. I put that in quotes in my notes, okay? We believe we're gooder than we are. And we believe these things because we have deceitful hearts. We need much more than just a a reforming of behavior. We need a transformation of our hearts. And that's something we can't do in our own strength. That's something we have no power to do in ourselves, something we have no power to do in others. We can't even scare people into a changed heart by telling about the horrible flood that's coming. Doesn't mean we shouldn't warn. Doesn't mean we shouldn't declare. But I'm telling you, no one gets scared into the grace of God. The only thing that changes a heart is when we truly see the overwhelming blood of grace in his people. He is the one who dove head first into the wrath so that I could be saved. So you could be saved. Just as the wrath of God covered all the sins of the entire world so the blood of Jesus covers every sin I have ever committed, will of word, thought, deed. Though my sin is great, and my sin is great, and according to Scripture, greater than I'll ever know. You realize that if I asked you to write out a list of your sins, you would never ever be able to list them out completely, even if you remembered everything you ever did. Because there's things that you don't even realize. Though my sin is great, God's grace is great. God always sees me. At least for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ for their righteousness. For those who come to a place and go, I, I am exactly as the Bible describes me. I'm going to trust that Jesus died the death that I deserve. And that he lived the life perfectly that I was supposed to and would never be able to. For those who believe that, God always sees me as great. That's how big his grace is. He always sees you as great because he always sees his son awesome. His opinion about the Son never changes. So those who are in Christ, his opinion 
for you never changes. We are secure in his love because he loved his son first. And as he loves his son, he loves us. So he knows it all. That's the amazing part. It's not as if you're like, well, if he really knew. I mean, if he knew what I'd done, if he knew what I did, if he knew what I'm not telling you, he's like, well, actually, I know everything. In fact, I know more than you even know, and I'm going to choose to love you. That's grace. That's a greater grace than I could possibly imagine. And let's not be false in that his grief is still real. My sin does still grieve him. It still pains him, and it still leads him to action, right? His sorrow led him to wrath. But for those in Christ, instead of him unleashing his wrath, you know what he does? When he is sorrow, when he experienced pain over my sin, instead of unleashing his wrath upon me, he turns and sees his son. And he remembers that he already unleashed his wrath on that son. He loves him. He forgives him. Great sin. Great sorrow. But great grace. And I'll close with a couple thoughts. Number one, I want us to understand something. We are saved by grace through I want you to know that you are not even saved by the quality of your faith. I realize I'm saved by faith, but my faith is weak a lot, or I just I don't always trust. Like you are not saved by the quality of your faith; you're saved by the object of your faith. As much as we change, we don't change. But I also want you to understand that when we experience grace, when you come face to face with grace, when you see the depth of love that God has for you in light of the sin of the person that you know and you're honest with who you are, that grace changes you. It's important to see the order of things. It's not, Noah was righteous and found favor. It says, Noah found favor. He was a righteous man. He was blameless and he walked Grace leads to righteousness. Righteousness, at least our efforts towards it, doesn't lead to God's favor. When you experience God's favor, when you experience God's love, when you receive grace, you will be changed. And I'll close with a verse out of Titus to prove it. Because I know you don't believe me, but you can believe God. Titus 2, verse 11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared. No one looking for it. Just came. It says the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What did it do? Verse 12, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What is? Grace. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What is doing that? Grace, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works because of grace. This is the table of grace. This is the most important part of our story. This is where those who believe in Christ, if you're not a believer, this is, this is really not for you, but I would compel you. I would compel you to see, no matter how big your sin is, no matter how great you think your darkness is, I'll tell you one thing, it's greater than you think. God's grace is greater. You can receive forgiveness from Him. And the only thing you got to do is to admit you're weak and quit pretending you're strong and receive God's gift of forgiveness. For those who are in Christ, this is a table of grace where we experience and participate in the grace actively. And you make a confession when you come up here. And so think about this. 
you were confessing, I think, three things. Number one, I'm a great sinner. And I don't mean that as like, hey, I'm, I'm, you are a great sinner. How do I know that? Your sin, covering your sin, required the death of the Son of God. There's no greater penalty than sacrificing the Son of God. But that was necessary. You come and say, I'm a great sinner. But you also come and say, God's grace is bigger. God's grace is bigger. Those are the confessions you're making. And as you walk away, you need to remind yourself that that grace that saves is the same grace that has the power to change. I pray we believe that. I pray we believe that. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We will never know the depth of our sin and wickedness. But you do. And though you do, you pursue us and you forgive us. You don't fool us about who we are. You don't lie to us. You tell us the truth. You say, great is your sin but my grace is greater. Help us to receive your grace. Help us to understand that our problem is internal, not external. Help us to believe that kind of radical love and forgiveness. And then help us to be that radical love and forgiveness. It is in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior.